0: Father, we are here to claim victory, victory over sin, victory over death because of your son Jesus, who decided to come to this earth willingly and uh, live among us and be with us, but at the same time knowing that he was God and knowing that he had to suffer on the cross to die for us, for our salvation. We thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that this church celebrates that. There's so many in the world that doesn't. But we are grateful that we can, and uh, we're in a country that can do that. So, Father, we are grateful that we have this opportunity to come before you and praise you and worship you and and uh, hear your word spoken to us. And this morning, as Phil goes through the message that you have given to him, that he has prepared, we know that you will speak to our hearts. You will speak through him to us, and your word will just uh, speak for itself because it is great and it's powerful and it's mighty we have a God that is a God that saves and a God that's mighty and to save. So thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come and share with you and be as a body and uh, be part of this group and, and hear your word spoken to us right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Ray. You know, a lot of times this time of year around Christmas is symbolized for a number of people with family. We look forward to having the, the kids home and aunts and uncles gathering together, grandmas and grandpas and so on. It should be all about Jesus, but for a lot of people, Christmas is all about family. Now, for some in that situation... That means there's a lot of stress that's associated with Christmas time as the family is all coming in from the far reaches of the globe, you get yourself all worked up thinking, oh, this is going to be fun, I know that Aunt Susie's going to be fighting with Uncle Leroy and I know that this is going to happen, that's going to happen and it really is more stressful for you than it is relaxing. If that is the case, on January 12th, I'm going to be speaking at Celebrate Recovery, that's a Thursday night, on this subject when family stresses you out. And everybody's welcome to come and join us. In fact, if that is true for you, I hope you'll be here. That'll start right at six o'clock. There's a meal at five if you want to come and eat, and then we'll slide right into that topic when family stresses you out. But for others, family gathering together is not stressful at all. It's a blessing. That's the way it is for myself and my wife. We Love gathering together with our family back in the Midwest, and we love the fact that now as our kids have left the house, they're all coming home for Christmas. We picked Katie up on Friday afternoon. She flew in, and and I have to tell you, I have never been so happy to see a girl get off a plane, and let me tell you why. I have seen the Taken movies, and my daughter was flying by herself for the very first time, and I was a nervous wreck. I was giving her all kinds of tips, like whatever you do, don't talk to strangers, don't let anybody take your picture. I wanted to hire one of those stewardesses that will fly with unattended kids to make sure that she got here safely. We pulled into Spokane to pick her up. Her flight was delayed, and I told Tina, well, one of us is going to have to stay out here with the car while the other one goes in to get her. And Tina said, well, I'll see you in a few minutes when I come back with her. I said, actually, that's not the way it's going to work. I threw it into park, jumped out of the car, and I'm running in to find Katie. She's supposed to be at baggage claim, so I have it all worked out. I walk through the front door. I look around, no Katie. I look through the crowd, no Katie. I'm looking everywhere, no Katie. My heart is racing now. I thought, she's been taken. I'm going to have to go get her. This is a bad deal. This was my worst fear. I can't find her. I walk back outside, no Katie. I go back inside, no Katie, over and over and over. This is how it's playing out. So when I step back out the last time, there's Katie standing on the sidewalk and Tina behind her with a gigantic smile. And she said, yep, you were in there looking for her when she's coming down the sidewalk. She was at the wrong baggage claim. She was at the wrong baggage claim. As she's walking down the sidewalk, Tina got to see her first. She was so excited. So we got to pick Katie up Friday. Eli will be home tomorrow and Nick gets home next week and we'll get to spend a few days with all of them. And that's, that's just exciting. A lot of the parents in this room know exactly what I'm talking about if you were King David and had the prospect of all of your children coming home, it might not have been exciting for you. In fact, it might have been beyond stressful, because you would have had to have thought to yourself, this is a nightmare. They're all going to be here, and it's going to break into a war. It always breaks into a war. I just wish they got along, but they don't. I wish they would all behave themselves, but they don't. It's hard for us to imagine that. That's King David, man after God's own heart. We'd think to ourselves, everything in his family situation should be perfect because he was David, but nothing in his family was perfect. Things were extremely difficult. Some of that has to do with the fact that David made some pretty big mistakes as a dad and as a husband, as a man. Other parts of that have to do with how the kids were wired and some of it has to do with society, but it would have been a nightmare. Now, you may not be aware of the fact that David had a very large family. Go with me to the book of 1 Chronicles, and I'll show you the names of his kids, at least the names recorded of his children from his wives. He had others from concubines that the Bible does not tell us about, but these are the names of his kids from his wives. 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. These are the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The first, Amnon, by Ahanoam, the Jezreelite, the second, Daniel, by Abigail, the Carmelite, the third, Absalom, whose mother was Meka the daughter of Talmi, king of Gesher, the fourth, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, the fifth, Shephatiah, by Abital, the sixth, Ethriam by his wife Eglah. Six were born to him in Hebron, where he reigned for seven years and six months, and he reigned 33 years in Jerusalem. These were born to him in Jerusalem. Shimea, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel, then Ibhar, Elishma, Eliphalat, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishma, Eliada, and Eliphalat. Nine, all of these were David's sons, besides the sons of the concubines, and Tamar was their sister. So you just saw exactly how many children he had, all those sons and one daughter. I want to show you four of his sons this morning and we'll actually talk a little bit about his daughter as well. Now we'll make our way through these pretty quick. We're going to cover a lot of ground in scripture and I'm asking that you open your Bible so that you see it for yourself but I want you to really focus on these boys. Let's start with his firstborn, Amnon. Amnon was the rightful heir to the throne of David. He was the firstborn. History would tell us that the firstborn would be the one that would ascend to the throne after his father died. But Amnon had a problem. His problem was women. And his problem with women was lust. At its worst, Amnon's problem carried over to his sister. He lusted after her, and the Bible tells us that he gave into that lust, and he raped her. Amnon right there was disqualified from the throne. You might think to yourself, when David heard about it, he'd have taken him to the woodshed, and that would have been the end of Amnon's life, but that's not how it played out. Certainly, he was heartsick over what had happened, but he didn't deal with his son the way he should have. It would require his third born son, Absalom, to actually do that. You see, Absalom was Amnon's half brother and Tamar's full brother. Two years after the rape happened, Absalom decided to take matters into his own hands and deal with his brother. He had been sitting on this for two years and stewing over it. The anger that had started in him had become bitterness and rage. So he set a plan in motion that involved him badgering his father into a situation where Amnon would be alone with Absalom. And when he was, Absalom killed him, took his life. Absalom allowed that root of bitterness to continue to grow in his life. And he directed it towards his dad. The Bible tells us that he actually led a coup attempt to sit on his father's throne, to take it from him. And he was successful for a time in accomplishing that until David was reminded that that throne was given to him by God and he needed to fight for it. And So David did. He rallied all of his troops, all of his men together, and he went to war against his son. Can you imagine that? He went to war against his own son. I want you to see what happened. So if you're in the book of 1 Chronicles, turn with me. To the book of 2 Samuel. Turn back to the left and you'll get there. The book of 2 Samuel, chapter 18. This is good storytelling in the Bible. Starting in verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. Isn't that just a fun name to say? Under the command of Ittai the Gittite. The king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send to us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. This had to be tough for David. He was at war with his own son. He was sending men out to hunt his boy down. David planned on going with them, but they talked him out of it. They said, you stay here. If we have to retreat, if things don't go our way, they're not going to chase us down. They're coming after you. If we fall by their swords, they will not stop until they catch you, and you are worth too much to us, so David, you stay here. And David said, there's wisdom in that. So if that's what you think I need to do, I'll stay, but for my sake. Listen to the emotion in this. For my sake, you deal gently with Absalom. You deal gently with my boy. When you catch him, don't, don't kill him. You bring him back to me. Verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Now let's stop there for just a second. Dini and I have an ongoing battle about what is better, riding a horse or riding a mule? Now, Danny's a mule skinner, and I'm a cowboy. So I'm a horse guy, and he's a mule guy. I'm right, he's wrong. And so I tell him on a regular basis that horses are better than mules, and he tells me that mules are sure-footed, and he would only want to ride a mule. And we go back and forth on this big discussion, great theological battle, long ears versus short ears, so on, all those different kinds of things. I now have biblical proof that I am right. Because... (laughs) Had I been out in that forest, my horse Jigger would have made sure that my head never got caught in the oak. He would protect me. And if I was in trouble, my horse would have stayed with me. But did you see what the mule did? Mule took him underneath the oak tree, got his head stuck up in there, and then the Bible's very plain about it. Danny, the mule went on, just left him. I went, all right, verse 10. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him. Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. The man said to Joab, Even if I felt my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you, and he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them, and they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised up over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it's called Absalom's monument to this day. Second of David's sons is now dead. David had pled with these men that were so close to him, for my sake you deal gently with my boy. They didn't. They didn't. Joab had been the leader of his army for years and years and years. He had fought beside David. They had won many battles together. Joab was his most loyal servant. Joab is the man who disregarded everything David had to say and killed him. Can you imagine how heartsick David had to have been when word came back to him? Amnon had died at Absalom's hand. Absalom had allowed bitterness to rage through his life and now he was dead after trying to usurp his father's throne. Well, that might then put you in a place where you would think, well, who is it that's going to lead Israel after David is gone? Who is it going to be? Well, if we're following the natural lineage of things, you have noticed that son number one is dead and son number three is dead. That would mean that son number two would be the natural person to lead the throne. In First Chronicles chapter 3, we heard that son number two was named Daniel. But I would venture a guess, you don't know much about him. He is only mentioned twice and it is in a list of David's children. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Daniel. It gives us very little insight into where he went or what he did. So in order to study him out, we have to leave Scripture and get into the traditions of the rabbis. And here's what we would learn. Daniel must have died very young. Their terminology says that he died without sin. So he died as a child. Son number one is dead. Son number two is dead. Son number three is dead. Son number four, Adonijah, would have been the natural choice to ascend to the throne when David got old and could no longer lead Israel. The problem is that David had already declared that son number ten, Solomon, would be the one that would take the throne. That was done by God, not by David. God had anointed Solomon as the leader. David had told the people that that's what was going to happen. But Adonijah, son number four, said that isn't right. Son number one is gone. Son number two is gone. Son number three is gone. That's my throne. And I should be the one that sits on it. So the Bible tells us that Adonijah set everything in place to make that happen. Look at how Scripture records this. We're going to go to the book of 1 Kings. This is a long passage, you're going to have to stay with me, but man, is it good. So listen to it as the Bible unfolds quite a story. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought for my Lord the King, and let her wait on the King and be in his service. Let her lie on your arms that my Lord the King may be warm." So they sought for a beautiful woman, young woman, throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Verse 5, now Adonijah the son of Haggath exalted himself saying, I will be king. Did you follow that? He exalted himself. That's a character flaw. He exalted himself. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man. He was born next to Absalom, next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Ray and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Now, let me call something to your attention. Joab, this loyal man to King David, has now switched camps. He is siding with Adonijah. David has not declared Solomon to be king yet. Adonijah has set himself up to take over the throne and Joab has joined him. What a blow that must have been to David. But did you catch the fact that certain people were left out of the advisory council of Adonijah? He didn't talk to his brother Solomon. He didn't talk to the priest. He didn't talk to Nathan the prophet. He stayed away from them. Instead, what he did was surround himself with yes men. That's a huge mistake for anybody in leadership. He found people that would tell him what he wanted to hear, and he avoided those that would challenge him no person in leadership should ever do that. I don't care what you're leading. If you're leading your home, if you're leading your family, if you're leading a business, if you're a leader in the church, you don't surround yourself with yes men. Not if you want to be effective. You surround yourself with people that will challenge you. One of the things that I love about the leadership of Libby Christian Church within our eldership, they challenge one another. Happens on a regular basis. They don't just tell each other what they want to hear. They challenge each other. They do the same thing with me. Our elders do not just say, hey, if that's what Phil wants to do and that's where he wants us to go, then we're going to do that. They challenge me. They do it on a regular basis. And sometimes they challenge me or they challenge one another into changing our minds and changing the course and changing the direction. That's the value of leadership. And Adonijah should have known that. But he chose to leave the people out of the circle that would challenge him and rather chose the people that would tell him only what he wanted to hear. That would scratch his itching ears. You've been around people that have done the same thing and you've seen the effects of it. It's disastrous. Pick up with me in verse 9. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent's stone, which is beside Enrogel, And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. And I would add to that because they had told him he was wrong. And he didn't want to hear that. Verse 11, Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggath has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore, come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. "'Go in at once to King David and say to him, "'Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, "'Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? "'Why then, is Adonijah king?' "'Then, while you are still speaking with the king, "'I also will come in after you and confirm your words.' "'So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. "'Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. "'Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, "'What do you desire?' "'She said to him, "'My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, "'saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. "'And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. "'He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, "'and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. "'But Solomon your servant, he is not invited.'" And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in, and they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet, and when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and sacrificed oxen, and cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and saying, Long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he is not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and have you not told your servants who should sit on the throne, my lord the king, after him? Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king, and the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, I will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king, and said, May my lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Beniah the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my king, say so. As the Lord has been with my lord, the king, so even so may his throne be greater than the throne of my lord, King David. Speaking of Solomon. So Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, Beniah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. Adonijah and all his guests were with him, heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came, and Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king. and The king has sent him with Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites. They had him ride on the king's mule, and Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone up from their rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. The king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Now listen to this. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword." And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Now that last part is what I really wanted you to see. It's taken me 20 minutes to get there. But that's what I wanted you to see in the worst of ways. Did you catch what Adonijah did? When he was scared for his life, He went to the tabernacle and reached out and laid hold of one of the horns on the altar. Now, the altar would have looked just like this. This is the best picture we could find. It would have looked just like this. The horns are on each corner. Adonijah went in, and he grabbed hold of one of those horns. What he was doing was appealing to God for mercy. And by appealing to God for mercy, he was appealing to his brother Solomon for mercy and he was using his relationship with God to find it because you see even though David had made all kinds of mistakes he raised his children in the knowledge of who God was they knew who Jehovah was They knew what they were supposed to do in times of great darkness and times of terrible trouble. They knew to appeal to God. And that's what Adonijah did. He went and grabbed hold of one of those horns. Now the Bible would show us that there is a subtle implication that any person that would do that with the exception of a murderer would be granted grace and mercy. If they were to go into the tabernacle and grab hold of one of the horns, they would find mercy. So that's what Adonijah did. And it worked. Solomon said, if he will show himself to be an upright man, he will live. He has appealed to the right place. He has gone and grabbed hold of the horn. But if he doesn't, he will die. He found grace by grabbing hold of the horn. By the way, just a little side note for you, two years later, Adonijah would die at his brother's command because Adonijah, though he had found grace and mercy Rather than just becoming a part of his brother's kingdom and more than likely serving in a position of power, he led another coup, another subtle attempt to try to take over the throne. And Solomon demanded his death, and Adonijah was killed. He had found grace and mercy and wasted it. He squandered it. He just just wasted it instead of using it for all he should. Now, the picture that we get from Adonijah's life, this picture of grabbing hold of the horn, is nothing accidental in the Bible. In fact, when God was giving the the actual layout and the design for the altar, these horns were incredibly specific. Go with me to the book of Exodus, and you'll see it. This is God speaking to Moses, telling him exactly how he wanted the altar to look. Exodus chapter 27, verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, Five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. When they were building that grate, the horns were supposed to flow out of it in one piece. They were not to be add ons, they weren't to be something that they just stuck on each corner. They were to flow out of the grate, and they were to be covered with bronze by God's design. Interestingly enough, all the other false religions and false gods that would show up in the Holy Lands would try to emulate that very thing. In their temples, they would build altars with horns on every corner. And God's first act when He would deal with them was to break off those horns. take you to the book of Amos just so you can see that. You don't have to turn with me, just listen. Amos 3, verse 13. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. When God dealt with the false religions, he busted off those horns and he left them laying on the ground so that everybody would know that he would not abide that. These horns matter. They matter. It would not be until the coming of Jesus in the Christmas story that people would really figure out why they mattered. Let me take you there, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 68. We're right in the middle of Zechariah's song. We looked at this last week. I'll read it for you again. It doesn't take very long. Read it for you again, and you're going to see these horns shining out in special ways. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Speaking of the coming Messiah, Zechariah would say about his son, John the Baptist, that would announce his way, that you are announcing a horn of salvation that has come to us. Now, when he referenced the horn, he was referencing the altar, the horns that were there. All through the Old Testament, all through Jewish teaching, a horn is used as a sign of strength. It symbolizes something like what you would see on a rhino's nose. We had one hanging over here through all of Thursday Night Pursuits. You'd look at that horn and realize you did not want to mess with that animal. If he was charging after you, he was going to win the battle. The horn shows strength and victory, kind of like the horn of an ox is used. When that ox is out plowing the field, there's nothing that can get in its way. There's a lot of strength there. Well, the horn has always symbolized strength through biblical teaching and through the Jewish teaching. But now, all of the sudden, Zechariah adds something to it and says that he has raised up for us a horn of salvation, as was promised in the days of old by the prophets, The closest we can get to finding that type of promise is in the book of Psalms, 132nd Psalm, verse 17. We read, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Out of the line of David, this horn was supposed to come. That was Jesus. Strength and victory would come. But Zechariah says, It's not just victory for today, it's a horn of salvation. There are only two references in all of the Old Testament to a horn of salvation. So this had to have caught people's attention. Maybe Zechariah had heard it. Maybe he had been expecting it. Maybe the Lord was leading him to such a place that he understood completely who Jesus was. Those references are found in the book of Psalms and the book of 2 Samuel. They look just like this. Psalm 18 verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Only two references in the Old Testament that ever mention a horn of salvation, and now Zechariah is calling Jesus that. The coming Messiah is a horn of salvation. Changes everything. That's not just strength and victory today. This is strength and victory forever. The horn of salvation is coming and going to change everything. The horn of salvation is coming and it will never be taken away. The horn of salvation is coming and Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of God and everyone that bows before him will be saved. Zechariah is teaching that Jesus Christ would be the horn of salvation and whoever grabs hold of him would be saved. It began in the incarnation when jesus took on flesh when he gave up all of heaven that he might save us beginning with diapers and burp rags jesus became like us that he might save us he became like us in every way think about it born as an infant into a borrowed manger he would finish this life on a cross and eventually the other bookend would be a borrowed tomb all of that that he might save us Facing temptations that you and I aren't strong enough to deal with, Jesus faced them and overcame them that he might be the horn of salvation, that whoever lays hold of it would be saved. Boy, that's good news. Zechariah knew what he was saying. When he said that Jesus Christ has come, that he might be the horn of salvation, he was saying that you now have hope that you've never had before. During the Christmas season, when we focus on Jesus, that's exactly where our mind should go. We now have hope that we could never have without Jesus. He's the horn of salvation, and if we will lay hold of Him, our life will change, and it will change dramatically. Well, that begs the question, how do we do that? If Adonijah went and grabbed hold of the horn, which, by the way, I love that illustration. The horn didn't come to him. He went to the horn. He knew exactly what he was supposed to do when he needed grace and mercy, and he moved himself to get there. Grace still pictures that same type of thing. Max Lucato would say it this way, if there are a thousand steps between us and God, he would take every one of them but the last one. That's yours. We have to move to the horn. We have to get there and do something, to grab hold of it. We're saved by grace, no question about it, but we need to get to that grace. We need to take the steps to get there and to reach out and grab hold of it. Well, again, the question is how do I do that? It begins in understanding that you need to. Just like Adonijah, he was at the end of himself. He thought he had a good plan, and that plan crumbled all around him. He knew what he needed to do, he was afraid for his life. He was all but dead in his choices. My friends, if you have never reached out and grabbed hold of the horn of salvation, you are all but dead in your choices. That's it. You just have a little bit of time to reach out and grab hold of the horn before your life ends here, or you will die. You will die in those choices. So Adonijah moved to the altar, and he grabbed hold of the horn. We do the same thing. Once we recognize that we need to, then we have to just confess our sin before God. Go to the book of 1 John with me. 1 John chapter 1 tells us exactly how it looks when we reach out and grab the horn. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's grabbing the horn. I'm confessing my sin. I am telling the Lord that without Him I am dead. I have died in my sins. But because of Jesus, because of the incarnation, because he came to this earth and died a sinner's death for us, we can reach out and grab hold of that horn, confessing our sin before him, and he is faithful to forgive us. You will find mercy there. You will find grace there. Get yourself there and grab hold of the horn. Confess. I would illustrate confession this way. If you've worshiped with us very long at all, you know that my family has a farm in diamond springs kansas homesteaded by my great-grandfather when he got to that land what he saw was a, a field full of rocks and before he could ever grow any crops he had to deal with the rocks so he did one by one he went out into the field and he grabbed hold of those rocks and he carried them to the side of the field and he put them down And he'd go out and get a hold of another rock and he would carry it over to the side of the field and he'd put it down. Until eventually he built a fence along his property line made out of the rocks out of the field. He'd pick them up and he'd carry them over and he'd put them down. Part of that fence is still there today, a reminder of what my great-grandfather had to do before he could ever pick up any crops. Before he could ever harvest anything, he had to get the rocks out of there. Well, that's what confession does for us. It prepares the land for the crops of godliness. When we confess our sin, we are picking up the rocks and getting them out of the field. And a lot of those rocks, my friends, are too big for you to carry on your own. So Jesus carries them with you to the side of the field. You put them down there and you start preparing the ground to produce a crop of godliness. That's what confession does for us. It gets the rocks out of the field. And when it gets the rocks out of the field, we are ready to see God do something huge, And what God does through His Son, Jesus Christ, is save us. You may not know this, but the horn of salvation is so strong and so full of victory that it is actually mighty to save. Jesus Christ is mighty to save. God allowed Him to become the horn of salvation to do that very thing for us, that if we will lay hold of Him, if we will grab hold of Him, we will be saved. Somebody say amen. We will be saved by grabbing hold of that horn. That's a promise from the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17. Listen. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Not only is he mighty to save, but he will quiet you with his peace. He will quiet you with His peace. Doesn't that sound promising and wonderful? All the things that you get worked up about, you have the opportunity to take those before the Lord and allow Him to quiet you with His peace. You don't have to do it on your own. He will do it for you. He will quiet you with His peace. And in the process, He will exalt over you with singing. God will sing over you. He is so happy because of you. He will sing over you. He is mighty to save, and when he saves, all of that becomes a part of your life. And all you have to do is get the rocks out of the field that you can hear it, that you can experience it, the quietness of God and the singing of heaven as it is poured out over you because he is mighty to save. Grab hold of the horn and experience it. You grab hold of the horn and you watch what happens. The horn of salvation is mighty unto salvation, and relationship, and eternity with God, restoration and redemption, all because of Jesus Christ, who is the horn of salvation. I want to leave you with a warning real quick. For this, we've got to go back to the book of 1 Kings. This warning comes from another man's life. His name is Joab. We've already talked about him. The leader of David's army, one of David's best friends, his nephew, the man that he saw more fights and battles with than anyone else, the man that stood back-to-back with him, toe-to-toe with him, the man who eventually betrayed him, turned his back on him, went with his son Adonijah as Adonijah tried to overthrow God's plan and David's plan for the throne. Well, after Adonijah died, word came to Joab. I want you to see what happens. This is First Kings chapter 2, verse 26. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. When the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. When it was told to King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar, Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. The king replied to him, Do as he has said, Strike him down and bury him. And thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head. Because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood come back on their head, or on the head of Joab, and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and his descendants, and for his house, and for his throne... There shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Joab tried the same thing that Adonijah did. He went to the tabernacle and he laid hold of the horn, believing that he would find grace and mercy from Solomon just like Adonijah had. He didn't. Solomon struck him dead. Solomon sent Benaiah back there and he said, You kill him. You kill him right there beside the altar. Now, there's a lesson in that for us. When Adonijah appealed to God for mercy and to his brother for mercy by grabbing hold of the horn, he was claiming the relationship that he had with Jehovah God because his father had raised him in the things of Jehovah. He was saying, I've messed up. I didn't do this right. I've messed up. When he made that appeal, he found grace because it was sincere. It came from his heart. When Joab made that appeal, it was an act. It was nothing but a work. It was him hoping that by doing the same thing Adonijah did, Solomon would extend to him the same grace. But the problem was there was no heart change inside Joab. Joab had made the choice to do what he had done. Joab had made a conscious choice to do the things that would betray his father David and to lead Adonijah against Solomon. Solomon struck him dead. Here's the lesson in that. There are a lot of people that are still doing the same thing. They are going to church, grabbing hold of the horn, believing that that will save them, but they have never surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. They have never allowed Jesus to become their Lord and Savior. They have believed that simply going to church would save them. You hear it all the time. Well, I go to church at Libby Christian Church. I'm there every week. Well, good for you. I'm glad you are, and that's a wonderful thing. But if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if He has not become the horn of salvation in your life, just come into church and He'll save you. It's going to help in the process as you continue to have your eyes open to the things of the Lord. But if you are choosing not to make that choice and you believe that just being in church is the means of salvation, all you're doing is grabbing hold of the horn, not the horn of salvation. There's a big difference. People will say, well, I, I give to the church, or I give to other ministries, and that should save me. No, it doesn't. The Bible never said that if you give to other places, you shall be saved. Not at all. That's just grabbing hold of the horn with false motives. Other people would say, I read the Bible every year. I read it cover to cover every year. Well, bless you for doing it, and the Lord will, but unless you've paid attention to what it says, it's pointless, it's meaningless, it's meaningless. And the Lord will bless that effort as the seeds are planted in your life, but unless you respond to what you've read, it doesn't matter. That's not a horn of salvation. Only Jesus Christ is the horn of salvation. People might say, well, my uncle was a preacher, my grandfather was a preacher. They really loved the Lord. Well, good for them, and they'll be in heaven around the throne of God, but unless you do, what they did doesn't matter. My father was a preacher. Who cares? Your father was a preacher. You need to give your life to Christ. Without it, you've not grabbed hold of the horn of salvation yourself. And there's nothing that's happening in your life and in your soul as a result of those types of works. They don't save you. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast, not to other people and not to God, that they deserve something from Him. We are saved by grace. The horn of salvation makes that possible. Joab didn't understand that. Because he didn't understand that, he lost his life in his sin. He knew he was as good as dead, and it was actually carried out right there. But if his heart had been pricked, and he had been convicted of that sin, what he would have discovered is that God is truly mighty to save.